Good morning, Five Stones Church. <laughs> good morning, good to see everybody today. Uh, I'm Eugene. And it's so nice, as John said, that uh, we're able to gather together without uh, having to uh, be restricted with all the COVID uh, requirements. So um, yeah, it's great to see everybody's face again. And such a blessing to be gathered in the house of the Lord. So we're continuing with the, uh, our sermon series on the book of James. Uh, Pastor John started last week with an introduction to, to the first chapter. This is somewhat of a controversial book because it, it focuses on some really challenging doctrine of faith and works. You know, living where the rubber meets the road in our walk with Christ. When I was in my senior year in high school, which is long, long, long time ago, it was in the last century, actually, <laughs> I, was, I was a mediocre student, and my report card has a, a bunch of Bs, some C pluses and stuff. So when I wanted to go to university, I had to find out what is the entry requirement is to get into UBC? And back then, unlike today, you don't have to be a straight A student to get into UBC. So I had to find out what that minimum requirement was, and I made sure I keep that mark so I can get into the, the science program. So today, many people think about being a Christian is meeting the minimum requirement to get ourselves into heaven. Is it, is, is it about getting our foot in the door of heaven? Is that our Christian walk? Is that our faith that doesn't really transform the way we live? Is that what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about? So Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And this is true. This is the rallying cry of the Reformation movement, the Protestant movement. Back in the 1500s and 1600s, it was in response to the false teaching at the time of the Roman Catholic Church that salvation is through doing merits, paying money to the church, doing penance, following acts and rituals. So we're able to go back to the basic of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave, and defeated the power of death, that we may have eternal life. Sinners like you and me are able to have through faith in him as a son of God. And we, know, we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, one and only son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we cannot earn our way to God through our works, and that is clear. But here in the book of James, it says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
And that's in the next chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 2. And it also says in verse 26, that as a body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Is James contradicting what Paul just wrote up above in Ephesians? Is, is James at odd with the teaching? How do we reconcile what Paul has said and what James is saying? So let's focus on today's passage. This is in James chapter 1, verse 19 to 25. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not produce the righteousness of God that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away immediately forget what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider, consider themselves righteous and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, widows, in their distress, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, 19-27. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that we're able to just receive your word. We thank you for the book of James that, that would challenge us, Lord. Father, we ask you to let the Holy Spirit Open up our hearts that we receive your word, Lord. Help me, Lord, as well as I share the message that the Holy Spirit will speak your word and that your truth will prevail in our lives, that we walk in our faith in you, Lord. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So James is a book of wisdom in the New Testament, much like the Old Testament book, like Psalms and Proverbs. And James is writing primarily to a Jewish believing audience. And he says in, in, in the first verses of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he calls the recipient, my brothers and sisters, brethren. And these are the folks that's been scattered outside of Israel after likely the stoning of, of Stephen. And they were living in the outskirts, like in Cyprus and uh, Syria, Antioch, uh, modern-day Turkey. So he's calling these believers to respond to God by living out their faith. Basic, essential Christianity. A, a life that is characterized by good deeds and a faith that works. So what does that look like? So today's passage will provide some, some practical way how we can live out our faith. The first is the heart of listening. 
Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, this message I'm preaching to myself because it's something I struggle with. Listening and not getting angry. It's a really hard skill to master when it comes to listening. Sure, if I'm in a nice coffee shop, maybe downstairs in the Hive Cafe, listening and chatting with some good friends, with some jazz music in the background, sure, I'm all ears, I'm listening, I, I'm paying attention. But what happens when I'm in a heated conversation at work, or maybe at a family, large family gathering and talking to people I really don't get along with? What happens if that other person starts challenging my point of view, my opinion, my politics, my worldview? And here's one that gets many people is if I start challenging you on your parenting skill. <laughs> people backs comes up, we're no longer listening. All our senses are all plugged up, and we're just waiting to pounce. I know a lot of times I just, I'm not listening, I'm just waiting for that moment to express myself, to unload my thoughts, my counterpoint. I want the last word. I want a knockout punch, right? And it happens also when we sometimes receive a, an email or a message, a text that is kind of inflammatory, and you just want to react right away. You want to respond. And it's so easy nowadays to do that. But these kind of conversation, these kind of exchange, these kind of communication quickly leads to anger. And then the gloves comes off, and these turns us into powder cake, ready to explode. And sometimes the anger can also kind of just stew under the surface like a submarine, waiting to attack. And these kind of things that force us and cause us not to be able to listen. And that's why. James here is telling us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it went on to say that, therefore get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So James is calling us to clean house. Remove the moral filth that is blocking all our senses the pride that is in us, and accept the word that is planted in a, inside us. So James is using that metaphor of a seed being planted here, as God plants a seed into our hearts that grows, produce a plant, and then produce fruits. But beware, Satan is also busy sowing weeds at the same time. Weeds can be very deceptive, and it's very invasive. Like here in BC, we see a lot of exotic plants, uh, plants like the English ivory, the English hollies, uh, baby breath, uh, European water lily, the Himalayan blackberry, which grows all over the place. You might see some bamboos and stuff like that. These are exotic plants, but they don't really belong in BC. They can be very invasive, take over the vegetation, 
And that's what the enemy wants to do is sow these kind of weeds into you and start to choke the word of God in our hearts. So sometimes we hear the word of God and do we? We might agree with it in our mind, maybe with a couple of amens, but that's as far it goes, right? Do we actually activate it in our lives? And God wants us to receive the seeds that bear fruit amidst sometimes this infestation of weeds around us as well. The second point in today's passage I want to focus on is the, the ugly image in the mirror. You all remember the evil queen in Snow White? She will look in the magic mirror every morning and says, magic mirror in my hand, who's the fairest in the land? Then the mirror replies, my queen, you are the fairest in the land. Now, I doubt most of us are so narcissists that we need to ask the mirror every morning to tell us how great we are. I think most of us look into the mirror in the morning to look for some imperfection in us, right? Maybe a bad hair, some food in our mouth, a couple of pimples maybe. So we do a little touch up and fix up before we head out the door, right? We look for the imperfection and we fix it. And this is what James is saying is, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is someone who looks in his face at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So that's what we ought to do is when we see imperfection, don't make excuses in the sense that, oh, well, this is the way it is. Or, well, I just, that's the way I am. There's no point trying to change that. Or, okay, I'll try, but no guarantee. So why are the churches in, in the United States and Canada having less influence in our culture today? Why is many in the younger generation are not drawn towards the church. I think one major reason is that people who claim to have faith but have little to show for it in their lives. We don't see the fault in ourselves, but the unbelieving world sees that and they run the other direction. For us, for me, I guess, in the Asian culture, and I'm stereotyping a little bit here, we are really big on saving face. We might speak very nicely to people, or we might speak arrogantly, but deep down, we just want to really pop it out ourselves. But do you know what is the root of saving face? It's pride. Pride is the root of all sins, it was the first and original sins. Remember the angel Lucifer who fell from heaven 
Well, that was because of pride. So James says, the perfect law does give freedom. He calls us to look intently at that perfect law and continue to do it and not forgetting. So how do we do that? Well, the perfect law, it pulls no punches. It tells it like it is. If we look intently at ourselves, we find in the mirror we reflect the word of God will reflect truly who we are, our own imperfection as well. So don't be deceived and try to rationalize the faults and make excuses that, oh, everybody does that. But there is the good news. The good news is that the perfect law shows us how amazing and how sweet that God's grace is. And it was a very costly grace and how wretched a person that I am, how lost I was, and how he found me. Jesus came 2,000 years ago in the flesh as our Messiah to die on the cross for us, to fulfill, fulfill the requirement of that law. So as a redeemed people, we are free from those, the power of death and the power of sin. We should be free from our own pride. We should no longer worry about saving face, but focus on the amazing saving grace. So that perfect law that gives freedom, and we continue in it, not forgetting what we have heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what we do. The third point I just want to highlight is obedience. Obedience, pure and faultless religion. It says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. A religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, widows, and the in the distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now the term religion and law, it tends to get a bad rap in our born-again, evangelical, cutting-edge Christian culture. We often says that, well, my faith is not about religion or following rules. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And that's very true. It's, it's very correct. But when we make a statement like that, we have to examine our hearts. Why are we saying that? Now, if I'm saying this to help a friend who, who doesn't know the Lord, and trying to find Christ? Or am I helping a brother or a sister in Christ who is struggling, trying to be a Martha instead of a Mary? And the Lord Jesus has said that Mary has chosen the better. So if those are the reasons, that's true. You're just helping to reorienting them back to the relationship with our Lord Jesus. But sometimes, are we making that statement, just trying to make an excuse defending ourselves by not really walking the talk and doing what Christ is prompting us to do. Now, the Greek word for religion is phaskia. I probably pronounced it incorrectly. It means religious worship, especially external, which consists in ceremonies. Does our faith involve worship? Does our faith involve 
ceremonies expressed externally. We have a baptism. We take communion once a month. I'd like to quote Reverend Ken Jones. He's from Miami, Florida. He said, religion is not a bad thing. There are bad religions. Rituals and ceremonies are not a bad thing, but they can be taken to the wrong degree, used in the wrong way. James is taking on the wrong concept of religion or worthless religion. There's 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible. In the book of Moses, the Torah, and Christian often thinks that in Judaism, so they teach us that salvation is by following the law in the Torah. And Christianity is a religion of grace. But if, according to the rabbinical people, our Jewish people, scholars, they would say that salvation is not through the Torah, but God's exclusive prerogative. And what the Jewish people believe is pure grace. And keeping the Torah is just the way a people of covenant behaves. Now Jesus quoted in Mark 12, verses 29 or 28 to 33. He quoted from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, Shema prayer. He says, the first of all commandment is this, hear, Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Then Jesus expanded. He said, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Shema, listen, is translated from Hebrew. It's not just listening, but listen closely, carefully, attentively, obediently to comprehend and to take heed. So it's not a passive listening, but it's an active, to internalize, to respond, to re embrace to what we hear. So as Christ died on the cross for our sins, he fulfilled the requirement of the law for us. So we are a new people, a people living under a new covenant. And as people under covenant, there's a way that we can behave. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandment in John 14, 15. He also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the, my Father in heaven in Matthew 7.21. So how do we act as a people of the new covenant? And this is where James says, the religion that God's our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So who are the widows and orphans? Well, in Bible's biblical times, they are the people most vulnerable. They have no social status. They have no social security. But God cares for widows and is 
recorded over and over again in the scripture. Remember uh, Hagar and Ishmael? When they were cast away from Abraham's household, God looked after them. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, were both widows, and the Lord looked after them. Jesus consistently defended widows against the religious leader in Mark 12. He healed Peter's mother-in-law when she had a fever in Luke 4. He raised the dead son of a widow, the only son of a widow, in Luke 7. And remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, nailed on the cross, he was concerned about his mother. He told his disciple, John, to look after his mother, Mary. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, the whole chapter, about looking after widows. In our world today, this group will include also the single moms, the elderly, the people with disability, the poor, etc. Orphans here in Canada, we may not see orphans and abandoned children, but they are more prevalent in other parts of the world. And this group will also include the unborn babies those who are helpless, vulnerable, and without a voice. So feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, visiting the sick in hospital or those in prison, providing hospitality to strangers, this is how we may be entertaining angels. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one, of the least of these brothers of mine you did for me, in Matthew 25, verse 40. So this is how we are to express the pure and faultless religion, to care and speak for those who cannot, and defend for them. Now before wrapping up, I'd like to share a story, so bear with me. In the, in the center of the city of Berlin, there's an open area and there's a museum located there. It's called the Topography of Terror. It's located on a former street called Prince Albert Straße. And that was the location of the former Gestapo SS headquarters and prison in Berlin. Today, there's a modern rectangular museum sitting there right now. And inside the museum is mostly photographs, pictures, of all the crimes and repression that the National Socialist Party of Germany during the 1930s up into the World War II. And in the corner, there's a section, and the section is for political prisoners. So there I found a black and white photo of my, my modern hero of my faith, um, and that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And many of you might know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He inspired me. I, I named my son. His middle name is named after Dietrich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian, a prophet, a pastor, a spy, and eventually a martyr. He was born in Germany in 1906. He came from a very accomplished family. His father was a, 
was the top psychiatrist in Germany for decades. He has seven siblings. They are all at the top of the game in science, in business, in academic. Dietrich wanted to be a theologian when he was 13. And by age 21, he became or got his PhD from the University of Berlin. But he was always seeking for truth. And one of the answers that really plagued him was, what is the church? So he went to Spain. He served under a church in Spain. He fell in love with the body of Christ. And he became ordained as a pastor. And he went on to New York to continue his studies and really to soak in the American culture. But when he was there in New York City, he found that the, the, the liberal theology in the seminary and also in the mainstream city enlightened church to be very, very, very shallow. But his faith changed the day when he and a fellow student went to a African-American church in Harlem called the Abyssinian Baptist Church. So you can imagine this Caucasian, German, spectacle, Lutheran, walking into a large black congregation in Harlem. He was blown away by the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in that place when these people were no stranger to suffering, racial discrimination. There was a fiery pastor there who was son of slaves. He was active in combating racism, social ills, and he minced no, no word about the saving power of Jesus Christ. So for the first time, Bonhoeffer saw the gospel being fully aligned as it is preached, as it is lived out by the people who were obedient to God. He fell in love with the people at the Abyssinian church. He started teaching Sunday school there. He traveled around the, the states with some of the leaders and continued to struggle to understand the racial segregation in America. Bonhoeffer returned to Germany in 1933, just when Adolf Hitler was elected as chancellor. He quickly saw what was being, uh, I guess, sold, uh, the deception of the, what the Nazi was selling to the German people. He quickly spoke out against it. He spoke out against the repression. He spoke out against the persecution of the Jews. And he also formed a breakaway church called the Confessing Church because Hitler was trying to consolidate the power of all the churches, making sure that there's only one state church and that state church has to be in full allegiance to the Third Reich. But eventually the cancel culture in Nazi Germany forced Bonhoeffer and his church movement underground. And when the war broke out, Bonhoeffer thought that it was a good for him to maybe go back to the States, maybe ride out the war. But within less of a, than a month in New York, he realized it wasn't God's will for him to be in the States. 
So he immediately got back on the boat and went back to Germany. So I don't have a lot of time to, <laughs> today to, to get into detail here, but the second part of his story was more like a spy novel. And so when he got back to Germany through connections his family had with people in government, he quickly saw the evil being unleashed by the Nazis. And Hitler, with the distraction of war going on, he fully implemented the final solution that annihilated six million Jews, enslaved Slavs and Poles, but also German people, people with disability, the young and the old, they were being euthanized in the institutions. So Bonhoeffer made a decision through connection with his brother-in-law to join an underground resistance group. And these groups were within actually the German military and they were formed by largely these old Prussian officer class who kind of like Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Like, they didn't buy the, the, the Nazi propaganda, so they plotted against the regime. So Bonhoeffer was working for them as an emissary, but he eventually got arrested and thrown into a prison for his involvement in smuggling Jews out of Germany. But when he was behind bar, he continued to write, to connect with other Christians outside of prison. He pastored inmates and the guards. And then the underground conspiracy group organized several unsuccessful assassination attempts on Hitler. The last attempt, you might have seen it on the movie Valkyrie by, with Tom Cruise, when they put a bomb in a briefcase in Hitler's headquarters. And that attempt failed. All the conspirator was exposed. Bonhoeffer was already in jail at that time, but then his name came up in an investigation. He was moved to the, the infamous headquarters on Prince Albert Strasse in Berlin, that prison. And then, weeks before the end of World War II, Hitler ordered Bonhoeffer to be executed at Fossenberg concentration camp. The camp doctor who witnessed the ex execution reported that, he said, in almost 50 years that I work as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Joining the armed resistance against Hitler opposing Hitler was not an easy decision for Bonhoeffer. His fellow Christian would not have understood. Eric Matassas, who wrote Bonhoeffer's biography, says that about his decision to join the conspiracy. Bonhoeffer had come to a place where he was in many ways very much alone. God has driven him to this place, though. He was not about to look for a way out any more than Jeremiah had done. It was the faith that he has embraced. It was obedient to God. And he could rejoice it, and he did. Bonhoeffer could easily talk himself out of what he ended up doing the, during the war. But he was convicted by the word of God, and the Holy Spirit led him to that historic path. He once wrote, only he who believes is obedient, and he who is obedient believes. So he put his life on the line for the people 
in Germany, Europe, putting his faith into action. So we go back to the question that we open with today. Is James contradicting the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone? For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we continue, Paul actually, if you go into verse 10, Paul says that, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even Paul here speaks consistently that salvation through real faith in Christ leads to good works. There's a writer named Colin Volden, poet. He provides a really helpful image for me to kind of grapple and reconcile with this. He picture Paul and James not facing each other, duking it out over the doctrine of faith and works. But picture them, Paul and James, standing with the back, back to back to each other, facing opposite direction. Paul is facing off against the faulty assumption that we can earn our way to God through our own efforts and our works. And James is facing the other direction, facing off against those who claim that having faith but live no different than the unbelievers. So James is not trying, attempting to enslave us to dead works, but rather encouraging, encouraging us to good works that must flow out of our relationship with Jesus. A faith that helps us to listen carefully, intently. A faith that doesn't anger easily. A faith that examines ourselves internally, intently, and obediently. So our faith is not at odds with our works because we are a free people, a people of covenant with Christ, living our, our faith in this world. Going back to that Reverend Ken Jones in Miami, he says that vertical connection is not what Christianity is about if we are not horizontally connected. So I'll close with what Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, let it light Give light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the good news is, church, we are no longer slave to sin. The Holy Spirit is poured out abundantly for us that we may do his good works. Are we prepared to be real and live it out? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this challenging message from the book of James, Lord. The word that prompts us to get out from our, our own comfort, to do things that you have called us out to do, things that we may in our own flesh resist, Lord. Help us to walk in our faith. Help us to listen to you. Help us to examine ourselves each day as we walk out the door that we are equipped 
and in submission to you, Lord. Father, we just pray that we can shine as your light, that a light that will shine and light up the room around us, Lord. Help us to walk by faith and walk in faith in you, Lord, and be, be fearless that we are in your will, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Father, Lord. We bless everyone here today. May your spirit just touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Eugene brought such a powerful message. He systematically took these verses and he exegized in a way that was so excellent that makes us look at ourselves. What James has told us, look at yourself. What are you living for? I love how he started this sermon with saying that sometimes we just try to get by in being a Christian. That we just are worried about our salvation, but we're not worried about anything else. But as we sang in response that our lives is a testimony of who Jesus is and what God's doing in our lives, that, that faith without works is dead. And that James wraps up this chapter by saying religion, now not all religion is bad, okay? We, we, we speak against religious behavior, but religion itself is not bad. He says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself un, unstained from the world. If you're in a place in your walk with Jesus Christ where all you're worried about is yourself, I want you to check yourself. Religion that is undefiled requires you to go take care of the marginalized. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus showed us. This is faith in action. So who in our community, within this church, who in our community that is outside of this church that is marginalized? The widows and orphans literally is, is covering every single person that is marginalized. Who is marginalized in our community? Go serve them. If you don't have your theology worked out, I don't care. If you don't, you can't figure out what being a Christian is, Start here. Start right here. Start by serving those that are marginalized. Start by serving those that are in our community that, that need help. You start there and Jesus will reveal himself to you. Such a powerful thing. And James tells us to do it. This is pure wisdom, people. So church, this is your mission. I love that I get to share the pulpit with Eugene. I love that Eugene brings a solid word, a word that, that challenges our heart to our core. So church, it's your turn to respond. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just your spirit coming, for you, you to speak through Eugene, to be able to give us a word that challenges us where we're at to do something beyond what we know, but to do something because you've commanded it. To love you and then love our neighbor. So Father God, we love you. So teach us how to love our neighbor.
And may we be the light in this world that you want us to be. So Lord, fill us with your spirit. Let us go empowered by who you are and serve those that need to be served. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.